I'm so excited to see this. This is amazing, amazing um, to, to come out and let's, let's talk about the Bible. So t- tonight I want to talk to you about a couple of different things in the Bible um, but with, with some emphasis on some, some things that you might not see before, but, but special emphasis on what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus today, here, now, in Hastings, and to establish his kingdom. For, for those of you who don't know me, this is all I do for a living. I travel around, had the incredible privilege of being a mentor by a pastor with his rabbi training. So all my stuff comes from that bent. I also have a master's degree in clinical psychology, so I am certified to check your head out. If you need that, I can do that. And so um, it, on, your way, on your way out in the breaks, you're going to notice a gigantic resource table. Um, and if you can't find my resource table, um, seek medical help. It's, it's huge. It's like taking up literally half the back of the building there. Um, and you might be thinking, why would you carry all that stuff around? And the reason why is because we make a whole heap of money from it. Um, and, and, and the reason we do that is because we believe that we're not called simply to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so, um, and so the, the profit from that this time of year goes to Cape Town where we have a home um, that is partnering with the prosecutor in Cape Town, South Africa to get girls out of the sex trafficking pattern. And so, um, and so all this you do is before you go home, if you would uh, avail yourself to it, uh, get yourself something that will change the way you look at God forever. And in so doing, you put something in our hands that helps us continue to get girls out of that um, horrendous issue. Um, it does us no good to play the moral police and say, you, know, you shouldn't be a prostitute. You know, it does, that does us absolutely zero good when, when there's the only way they could feed their family. What, what, so what we do is we get them off the street, we get them off drugs, we get them high school educated, we get them job trained, and then get them placed in the marketplace in order to break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Town Flats. And so that's what you're participating in when you grab something. Um, yep. Everything's available in four formats, CD, DVD, USB, and direct download, okay? So if you don't know what a USB is, just get the CD, okay? Or uh, find a nine-year-old. They'll show you what to do with with, with a USB. All right, so um, first thing I want to look at, I I want to look at the trial of Jesus, and and I want to ask a question, some questions about it that um, gives us huge insights and challenges into what it means to be a follower of Jesus in our world um, today. So this this is Luke's account of Jesus' trial, and, and this is what it says. It says, Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes the payment of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, um, this is Thursday night, and you're in church. And let me tell you what that means to me. That means I am under no pressure to be an evangelist. I, I, assume, all, all, I, I assume that all of you have made a decision to follow Jesus Christ. I assume I'm talking to what we would call saved um, people, I, I don't feel any pressure if you're in church on a Thursday night l- looking to learn something from the Bible that you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus. I know I'm talking to people who have made that decision, and I'm very happy uh, about that. But, but, but I am, so I'm talking, I'm, I'm talking to believers, and I want to ask us some, some deeper questions that, that we might not ask if we were with a, a more unlearned so, sort of crowd. So I want you to notice a couple things. Um, one, they, they do not accuse him of blasphemy to Pilate. Why? Pilate wouldn't have cared. There was upwards of 40 pagan gods operating in Jerusalem alone. Pilate could care less if this man is offending your thoughts and value systems around some god that you think is right. So they don't accuse him of blasphemy to Pilate, because Pilate doesn't care. What they accuse him of is they accuse him of trying to establish a new kingdom. 
central to understanding Messiah in a Jewish context is the idea of him being king. And the government will be upon his shoulders. See, what happens in Western Christianity is all the focus gets thrown on Jesus being Savior. He's our Savior. Jesus Christ, our Savior. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our forgiver. Is that true? Absolutely that's true. And we say yes and amen and we embrace it and we honor it. But at the expense of that, oftentimes what happens is the part that gets less playtime is Jesus isn't, Jesus didn't just die to forgive sins. Jesus died to confront oppression here, now, today. He didn't just, let me say it this way. He didn't just die to forgive you for your outburst of anger. He died to release you from the and set you free from the hold that anger has on your life. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you for your moment of lust in front of a computer screen. Jesus died to set you free from the hold that lust has on you here, now, today. It's not just about the forgiveness of sins. It's about a new kingdom being established in opposition to the current reign of the oppressor. One of the ways the New Testament frames Jesus is not just as a forgiver, although we embrace the forgiveness of sins. It was also as a liberator from an oppressive regime of power run from a guy named Caesar. So when they accuse him to Pilate, they do not accuse him of blasphemy, like being able to forgive sins. What they accuse him of is claiming to be Messiah. So essentially what they say to Pilate is, is he's claiming to be Messiah. And I know you're not familiar with our culture, but in our culture, when you say you're Messiah, that means you are taking over the kingdom. It's very important that we remember that. Jesus did not invite anybody ever to go to heaven when they died. Now, Jesus gives the hope of heaven when we die, but Jesus never ends a sermon by saying, hey, let's just end this by making sure you pray a magic prayer to make sure you go to heaven when you die. That's not how Jesus framed it, and that's not how anybody took it. Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's pretty impressive, by the way. He dies and rises from the dead. It comes back from the dead, and how much did he talk about heaven? None. How much did he talk about hell? None. I find that unbelievable. What I find more unbelievable is no one asked him. If I died tonight in an automobile accident and you came to my funeral next Monday and then I showed up here next Sunday, I would ruin your service, right? It's like, oh my God, Shane Willard's back, right? Get him a mic. And we started asking questions. We wouldn't get through two questions before someone said, would you please tell us exactly what happened after you died? We're enamored with that idea. Jesus comes back from the dead and no one asked him, hey, what was heaven like? What was hell like? I heard you preach there. How'd your altar call go? Nobody. Nobody said... Nobody said, hey, when you rose from the dead, there's lots of tombs everywhere that empty. Nobody. There's all these amazing things and no one asked. Jesus dies and rises from the dead, comes back from the dead. And their response was, oh, great, you're back. Are we going to take over Rome now? The idea of Messiah had nothing to do with the forgiveness of sins, although we embrace that about Jesus. When a Jewish person heard Messiah, what he was hearing was there's a new kingdom coming. There is a new kingdom coming here, now, today. So they say, he's opposing the payments of taxes to Caesar, and he claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you've said so. Like, this is your world. I am who you say I am. Next slide. Let's keep going. Then Pilate announced to the chief priest in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted, he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching, and he started in Galilee and come all the way here. Remember, they, they go back and they say, no, 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 you think he's a person of peace, but he's stirring up people. They accuse him of treason. 
On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, I want to walk through uh, this because uh, literally on the surface, uh, this passage makes no sense. There's so many questions uh, involved in it. Hit that next slide. Like, um, one, if if Jesus' main message was to believe in him in order to go to heaven, why kill him? Like, if your message is standing on hills saying, listen, you need to accept me as your personal Lord and Savior so when you die, you can know you can go to a better place, that's not worth killing someone over. If Jesus' main message was to take care of the poor, why kill him? Like, if his whole message was, let those of you who don't, let those of you who have share with those of you who don't have. That falls in the category of obvious. That's hardly worth killing someone over. And third, why not kill him yourself? Why do you need Pilate to do this? Was there not some sort of underground Jerusalem mafia contingent that they could have paid to, to, to lure Jesus behind a building and sort him out? Why do, you not, why do you need Pilate to take the fall for this? Of course, the answer was he was, he, he, he was very, very popular. He was very, very popular. Matter of fact, it says this earlier. It says, so they looked for an occasion to take him in secret because he was so popular they didn't want riots to happen. Which, which, which leads me to this question. What time of night was this taking place at? See, in in the movies, they grab Jesus. It's the middle of the day. Pilate is standing in this Roman column thing with thousands of Jews saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Is that anywhere close to what happened? Zero chance. It says they took him in the middle of the night after Passover. Well, Passover ended about 10 o'clock, 1030 at night. And then it says he went and prayed for an hour in Gethsemane. So here's what's happened. Everybody has traveled for two days to get to Passover. Then they party all day. Then they eat the biggest meal of the entire year, accompanied by four glasses of wine. Don't you understand now why Jesus is like, can you not stay awake for an hour? What is wrong with you? But they, they, they've, they've walked for two days. They've partied all day. They ate the biggest meal they have eaten all year. They drank four glasses of wine. And now he wants to go pray. What better time on earth to grab him than in the middle of the night after the Passover meal? Everybody zonked out. And it says that the trial was held in Caiaphas's backyard. Well, how big is that? I mean, I've been there. It's about this big. I've actually stood there. It's not that big. So there, there wouldn't have been that many people yelling, crucify him, crucify him. This is in the middle of the night, which leads to all kinds of questions like, here's what happens. What you have is you have the head honcho of the entire region of the Roman Empire willing to get out of bed in the middle of the night to hear one trial about one guy. That makes no sense. How long would it take you to get a trial to the Supreme Court of of New Zealand? My, My guess is a long time. I mean, could you imagine driving down to Wellington and at 1 o'clock in the morning knocking on um, the, the prime minister's door? I guess that's where they live. The, the, knocking on the prime minister's door and say, excuse me, I just got this dispute with my neighbor. We need you to get out of bed and sort this out. And the prime minister's like, all right, come on in. I mean, just, just get a coffee. Get a, like, no, that, that, but that's what's happening here. You have the head honcho of the entire region willing to get out of bed to hear one trial about one guy. And then he works out that there's more to the story and he figures out that he's under Herod's jurisdiction and he gets Herod out of bed in the middle of the night. So here's what you have in this story. 
You have the two head honchos of the entire region willing to get out of bed to hear one trial about one guy. In the middle of the night. That makes no sense. What also makes no sense is why is Herod and Pilate even there? They didn't live in Jerusalem. Why are they even in Jerusalem? They lived in Caesarea in big mansions. Yet they find themselves in Jerusalem, the headquarters of slaves. Not only that, they find their door getting knocked on in the middle of the night by a bunch of priests who've organized a behind-the-scenes arrest of a guy in the middle of the night, and then you have both of them willing to get out of bed to hear one trial about one guy. Does any of that make any sense? It's almost like there's got to be more to the story. There's got to be more to the story, and there is. And I happen to know the backstory to it. Anytime you're reading the scriptures, you want to ask, is there a story underneath this story that makes this story make more sense? (laughs) See, this story actually starts in 44 B.C. In 44 B.C., there was a, a guy named Julius Caesar. He was the first guy to successfully combine the whole world under one rulership. He was a very busy man. He was ruling the whole world, and he was inventing the salad. He also said that he was God. He said, look, you got to understand this. Anybody that can bind the whole world in one rulership, he's not just a man. He's actually God in flesh. And if you know your history, you know that Julius Caesar was killed by his best friend by being stabbed in the back, which hurt his God claim. The idea was, if you were actually God, you probably should have seen that coming, right? And so um, Julius Caesar's God claim started to, 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 to falter. Well, Julius Caesar had a son, and his son's name was Octavius. And Octavius took on the title Caesar Augustus. That, that might start ringing some bells from Luke chapter 2, in the days of Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, by 17 BC, was starting to to have some problems with the whole God claim thing. And so what he did is he called a memorial service for his father, and he had the stargazers give testimony that there were strange stars appearing in the sky. And he stood up and he said, don't you see, because there are strange stars appearing in the sky, this proves that my dad was God. And he now is sitting at his seat amongst the gods. And if my dad was God, then I am the son. God, and if I am the Son of God, then I should be worshipped. And if I'm the Son of God, I should be worshipped primarily. And so Caesar Augustus instituted a 12-day celebration of his birth. It went from December 19th to to December 31st every year, and he called that 12-day celebration of his birth, he called it Advent. Right? The ad, it was called the Advent of Caesar Augustus. On the first day of Christmas, my true love sent to me. Okay, that's, that's where all that comes from. And so Caesar Augustus claimed that his, his godness was certified by strange stars appearing in the sky. And so what he did is, is because there was no electricity, no printing press, no internet, no Facebook, no social media, no Twitter, no anything like that, no, no news media, how do you get a message from Spain to India that you're the son of God and should be worshipped? So here's what he did. He printed it on legal money. That was the way to get a message from Spain to India. You print it on money, and the money would find its way around the empire. And so in those days, anytime you wanted to see the message from the empire, you would just simply read your money. So what he did was, very clever, he had his image printed on money, and on the heads part of the, the, the coin, it would say, Caesar is Lord. And then when you turned it over, it had a message. And there were three Advent coins. First Advent coin said, Caesar is Lord, no other name on earth by which men can be saved. Second Advent coin said, Caesar is Lord, and he'll be a multiplier of bread for all people. Third Advent coin said, Caesar is Lord, and there will be peace on earth and goodwill to all men. 
right? Is the Christmas story starting to come around? All right, so, so do you see how it says one time they were trying to trap him with the Romans? And so they asked him, what do you approve of special tributes to Caesar? And they have like a first century private investigator over to the side, and he has a first century movie camera, and he's trying, to, he's trying to catch Jesus in treason. And remember, Jesus won't have any of it. He says, he says um... I don't have a coin. I need a coin. I need a coin, right? And so somebody finally says, hey, I have a coin. And remember what he says? He says, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. Hang on. Who did Caesar say he was? Caesar said he was God. Well, hang on a second. If you're carrying an object with an image of someone who says he's a God, what are you carrying? An idol. What's the second command? Don't have idols. Remember what Jesus says? You better keep Caesar what's Caesar's, and you better keep God's what's God's. In other words, you're trying to trap me here, but you're violating a bigger law by carrying an idol around. That was one of the first times Jesus was like, whoa. See, these coins were the way to get the, 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 the word around. You see how Luke chapter 2, remember Luke chapter 2, it says, in the days of Caesar Augustus, there went out a decree that all the world should be taxed. And, and then right, right, it says, and there was a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace and goodwill to all men. For unto us is born this day in the city of David a Savior, and his name is Christ, and he is Lord. See, Christmas isn't just about Jesus humbling himself to come to the earth. Christmas is about Caesar not getting the last word. Jesus does. It's about the oppressor not getting the last word. Jesus does. Essentially, Luke says, you want some celestial signs? Our celestial signs were so big, people in other countries could follow it. It wasn't just the observation of a few seers. It was people in other countries following this thing. In other words, the next time you're having Christmas here and you're singing, you're singing some of the ancient traditional Christmas songs that are so good, like, oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. Oh, come let us adore him. He's the Christ, he's the Christ, and he is Lord. The next time you sing that song, I want you to understand it's not just about Jesus humbling himself to come to earth to forgive sins. It's about Jesus coming to earth to set you free from the slave drivers over your life. It's Caesar doesn't get the last word, Jesus does. So these Caesars all said they were God. Here's the problem. There was one group of people in the Roman Empire who didn't buy it. And that was the Jews. No matter what the Caesars did to prove they were God, they just didn't buy it. And so the Jews were prone to rioting. In 17 AD, there was a guy named Judas the Zealot, and he led a riot in Jerusalem. And he he essentially said, the kingdom of God is at hand. And if God be for us, who could be against us? Let us take up spears against the mighty Roman Empire, and God will go before us and wipe them out. And of course, they tried it. And it was a disaster. Lots of slaughter and massacre in that revolt. And so Caesar Tiberius, who was the Caesar during Jesus' day, he didn't want another revolt. And so what he did is he put a guy named Pilate in charge of the whole region. Pilate was a particularly cruel man. In 54 AD, they had to remove Pilate for being too cruel. So Pilate, and Pilate's whole job was, here's what Caesar Tiberius did. Caesar Tiberius said, you know what? I'm going to give you a mansion overlooking the Mediterranean Sea in Caesarea. Here's your whole job in life. Here's all I want you to do. I want you to make sure those crazy Jews don't riot. So here's my question. 
Why was Pilate in Jerusalem when he lived in Caesarea? Here's why. What time of year was Jesus arrested? It was called Passover. What was Passover? Passover was a yearly celebration about God's will to deliver you from slave drivers. In Jesus' day, who were the slave drivers? Rome. 300,000 people getting together, singing songs in unison about God being on our side and not on yours. About God's will to deliver us from the mighty Roman oppressors. Is there an environment more conducive to a riot than that? It would be like if a group of people that New Zealanders considered outsiders... If 300,000 of them got together in Auckland to protest the mighty New Zealand oppressive regime and they all started singing songs about a God that New Zealanders don't uniformly recognize and about that God's will to set them free from the oppressive Kiwi regime. If 300,000 outsiders gathered in Auckland to celebrate their God's will to free them from you, would you feel better if New Zealand sent the armed forces in to make sure that these people stayed under control? Think about it this way. If 300,000 professed members of ISIS got together in Auckland to peacefully sing songs about their God's will to free them from your oppression. Wouldn't you feel a little bit better on the inside if they sent the armed forces up just to make sure? Why was Pilate in Jerusalem? Because it's Passover. And at Passover, 300,000 Jews got together every year to sing songs about their God's will to free them from you. There's not an environment more conducive to a riot in the history of the world than that. So Pilate was in Jerusalem. Why? Because it was Passover. And he went to Jerusalem every year on Passover. If you want a great book on this, you can read the book Killing Jesus by Stephen Mansfield. Stephen Mansfield is a Pulitzer Prize winning presidential historian from America. And he wrote a book about Easter week from the perspective of Pilate. It's brilliant. Brilliant. So let me show you about what Stephen Mansfield talks about with that. Let me, let me show you the next slide. So this is a, a Roman aquila. It's an eagle on a stick. Um, so so the, the Romans used an eagle on a stick to symbolize their superiority when they were occupying another country. If you saw the, the movie two years ago, Pompeii, and it was about Kiefer Sutherland had, had, had led this, uh, this thing into, into the UK, and they, he took all these Celtic prisoners of war, and then he made them fight in the gladiator arena in Pompeii. And remember the main Celtic warrior? He, if you saw the movie, he smuggles in a, uh, a stick with an eagle on it. He somehow smuggles it into the gladiator arena, and then in front of everybody, he holds up the eagle on a stick, and he breaks it over his knee. And Kiefer Sutherland then pronounces him the death penalty. Why? Because the eagle on a stick was Roman symbolism that we are superior to you. Which leads to all kinds of questions about what empire today uses an eagle on a stick to show their superiority when they're occupying another country. 
<laughs> right? That's America, right? In case you missed that, right? So that's they, 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 also, who else used a drawing of an eagle on a stick on the top of their flags? Yeah, and Nazis, right? And the neo-Nazis, right? So, so this all goes back to the Roman Empire. So here's what would happen. Here's what would happen. Pilate would have his eagle on a stick, and he would show at Passover 300,000 people singing songs about God's will to deliver them from the mighty oppressive empire. And, and Pilate would show up, and he would hold the eagle on a stick over them. And the rule was this. You can sing to whatever God you want, but when I hold the eagle on a stick out, you must stop what you're doing and acknowledge it. You don't have to bow to it. You just have to acknowledge it. Essentially, you can sing whatever song you want, but you will admit that I have control over you. This isn't just about Jews. This is, just a, this is about me and you and our life here now today. Essentially, this is what it means. You can sing whatever song you want in church, but when you go home at night, you know your anger problem has you. You know your lust problem has you. You know that worry issue has you. You know that poverty thing has you. You know it does. You know it does. You know that fear issue has you. you know this is about all of us singing songs to a God that is greater and stronger and higher and to a God that has a will to set us all free. But the eagle on a stick is our reminder at night of what still has us that God has not successfully set us free from yet. This isn't just about Jews and Passover. This is about me and you and the things on our life that still have us despite our worship of a living God. In other words, Easter isn't just about Jesus forgiving sins. Easter is about Jesus grabbing the eagle on a stick and decimating it in public. It's about him freeing us from those things that have the hold on us. It's not just about forgiveness. It's about being set free from empire. Now, let me show you this. Here's a map. Next slide. Here's a map of Jerusalem. I've got my trusty laser pointer here. Everybody see that? It's a little bit dull. That screen's pretty bright, but you can see it right there, right? All right, so I've never done drugs in my life, but for some reason I can't hold this totally still. But you can, you can see, where'd it go? There it is, all right. So there's my laser pointer. Um, Pilate lived way up here in a place called Caesarea. And what he would do is he would come down to Jerusalem through the F, right through here. And the reason is, is because the, the, the army barracks were there. So here's what he would do. He would grab the biggest war horse he could find. And the biggest chariot, think about your Roman Empire movies, the guy in charge is, always has the biggest horse, and he's always got the biggest chariot, and he always has an eagle on a stick, right? So Pilate would come in through the F, and it's interesting, he'd come in through the F, right past here. And if you know anything about Jerusalem geography, you know that this entire area right here is called Gehenna, that's called hell, okay? So Pilate would come down from Caesarea through the F, through hell on a war horse into this area right here. Now, just to check your history, on the day that Pilate comes into uh, to Jerusalem at Passover, who's also coming in at Passover? On the other end, Jesus. And he's riding a donkey. So Pilate is riding a war horse, and Jesus is coming in on the other end riding a donkey. Now, Jesus comes in from this end. This right here is called the Mount of Olives Cemetery. Right? It's the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, by the way, is the largest cemetery in the world. If you've ever been there and seen it, it's tens of thousands of tombstones for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. It is the largest cemetery in the entire world. It is humongous. 
It is humongous. You, you see now why when the scripture says that Jesus to get solitude would spend a night on a hill called the Mount of Olives? Why? Because if you want alone time, what you do is you wait till it's dark and then you go sleep over between the tombstones. There's no better way to get alone than to camp out at night in a cemetery. A little bit creepy, but guarantees you will be alone, right? So what it says is, what it says is, is that Jesus got on a donkey and came from Bethany, which was here, to Bethpage, which is there. Past the Mount of Olives Cemetery, it says on a road that goes down the Mount of Olives, I've been on that road, it's in the middle of the largest cemetery in the world. Now, if you're in the middle of the largest cemetery in the world and you look around, what are there a whole heap of? Gravestones. So there's tombstones everywhere. Now, that's very important. It's going to come back in a second. So Pilate's coming in from the F through hell, right, right into the army barracks, riding a war horse. Jesus is coming in on a donkey from Bethany to Bethpage, past the Mount of Olives Cemetery, right through it where there's a whole heap of stones. I want everybody to say that with some gusto, a whole heap of stones, a whole heap of stones. Very important. So we'll come back in a second. And then he went into the temple this way. Here's the temple here. Gethsemane's right there. So one quick last review, then we're going to look at the scriptures, right? Pilate comes down from Caesarea on a war horse right through hell into here. Jesus is on a donkey right through the Mount of Olives Cemetery where there's a whole heap of stones. And then he comes into the temple on a donkey, all right? Now with that as the backdrop, let's look at the story. Next slide. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out to spend the night on a hill called the Mount of Olives. Once you see that, you can see it's, you know, honestly, it's from here the, the Mount of Olives from the wall of Jerusalem is from here to the road. I mean, it's just, it's just not that far. It's right there, and it's a humongous cemetery. Next slide. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you'll find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Now, anytime you're doing a serious Bible study and you read something like that, you want to ask yourself an obvious question, which prophet? And what prophet is they quoting? And what's going on there? In Jewish culture, this is called a remez. A remez is a hint or an illusion. It's sort of like this. If New Zealand was taken over by hostile occupying foreign armies, and these hostile occupying foreign armies forbidden all scripture, so they confiscated all scripture, they turned off all electronic scripture, and let's say they succeeded in it, right? What's the one thing they can't take from you? Your memory, right? So let's say they go, it's not just illegal to own scripture, it's illegal to quote scripture to each other. Here's the problem they're going to run into. They don't know scripture. Right? So what they did, this is similar to this, so what they did is the Jews had a way of quoting Scripture in a way that they wouldn't get caught. It was called remez. It would be sort of like this. If I did it today and I went, hey, remember, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Of course, you do that in your mind or we get caught, right? Hey, remember, all things work together for the good of those who love God, right, mate? So I would pick the scriptures we all know, and I would quote half, knowing you would know the other half. The Jews did this all the time with prophecies. They had memorized all the prophecies about Messiah. So this is only half of the prophecy. Watch what it says. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king is coming. Gentle and riding on a donkey. On a colt, the full of the donkeys. Evidently, there was a prophet somewhere who said that Messiah would establish his kingdom from the Mount of Olives riding on a donkey. 
And all four Gospels quote that prophet, and all four Gospels only quote half of it. Why? Because they knew that the Jews had memorized the other half. Here's the other half of the prophecy. Next slide. This is from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king is coming. Righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow will be broken and he will proclaim peace to the nations and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Who's, Who's coming into Jerusalem on the other side? Pilate. What's he riding? A war horse and a chariot. Hmm. Do you see why all four Gospels only quote half the prophecy? They were partial to living. This took place to fulfill what was spoken to the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king is coming gentle and riding on a donkey. Oh, and by the way, that spells the beginning of the end of the war horse. When you see Messiah coming in on the Mount of Olives on a donkey, you can rest assured that's the beginning of the end of the guy on the war horse. Mm. Next slide. This is Matthew's version of it. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. Hang on a second. Place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives. What's there? A big cemetery. What's in a cemetery? Aha. The whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they'd seen. Blessed is the king. Hang on a second. Who's coming into the city on the other side? Pilate. What's he riding? A war horse. What does he do to people claiming to be king? Crucifies them. It's sort of like this. Is there any guy on earth that you do not want hearing us singing about a new king? Pilate, the one guy's there. It's sort of like this. You parents will understand this. Have your kids ever said something that was true at the wrong time and it was embarrassing? Like, like I was at a party once and there was, um, um, uh, it was 25 of us or so. And I, I was in a small group of about six. We were having small talk. And this little four-year-old girl came up and said, Mommy, is that the man you think is creepy? Right, of course, of course, I knew. I, I, of course, I knew the person she was talking about. And, and to be fair, he is a little bit creepy. But but you could but you can understand the mom's reaction. The mom's reaction was, not now. Like, like what you're saying is true, but not today. Right? Not now. And it's sort of like that reaction. I mean, of the whole year, the worst time on earth to start singing and proclaiming there's a new king is the day that Pilate's coming in with itchy trigger fingers looking to persecute someone caught in a revolt at Passover. Essentially, people with sense would have been saying, not now. Can this wait eight days? Right, now watch, watch what happens. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to God in the highest. Watch what happens. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he said, if they keep quiet, then the, these stones will cry out. Where was he? He was in a cemetery. What's in a cemetery? You know, I've heard this preach before. You better keep your praise on. You better keep your praise. If you quit praising, that road out there might cry out, which is creepy and weird. <laughs> you got to consider where he was. He was on the Mount of Olives in the middle of a cemetery, and he's determined to establish his kingdom. And he essentially says, if you're not with me, I am capable of raising the dead. 
either you're going to be with me or there's going to be a weird episode of The Walking Dead right now. And the Romans don't know that to kill a zombie, you've got to stick them in the eye hole. I mean, you can't just, you can't just, no, well, the advantage, they don't know yet. They don't know. They don't, they don't know. They, they, have, they have no idea. Andrew Lincoln hasn't told. Listen, it's in the eye, it's in the eye hole. Can't kill a zombie another way. If there's a walking dead, you can't go. You've got to go in the eye hole. <laughs> and Jesus said, if they be quiet, these, in other words, it's my time and either you're with me or I'll raise the dead and do it one way or the other. It's my time to establish the kingdom. Next slide. So as a way of review, Pilate on a war horse comes into Jerusalem right through hell. Jesus comes on a donkey through the Mount of Olives Cemetery, past a whole heap of stones into the temple. So let's go back and answer some of the questions we asked. Why was Jesus killed? Next slide. Well, Jesus was killed because he confronted people who were controlling the temple and working with Pilate in order to use people's spiritual guilt to live in mansions. That's why he was killed. He was killed because Pilate was given a job to keep Jews under control, and he couldn't do it with weapons. So what he did is he went back and he asked the priest to help him keep the Jews under control by reporting all rabble-rousers. And then the Jews used that to get rich. What they would do is they would come up and say, we need some more money for the temple. We need some more money for the temple. And Brighton says, I don't have any more money for the temple. Right. Brighton. We'll be sure to give your name to Pilate when he comes. And when the priest gave Bryden's name to Pilate when he came, Pilate didn't ask questions. He just, cons- he just started beating people. And so that's why in the Gospels you see people terrified of their priest. Why would you be terrified of your pastor? That's ridiculous. Why? Because the temple that was supposed to show the peace and love of God to the whole world had actually become a corrupt system of oppressive power that mirrored Rome. And Jesus said, not one more day. If you look at Jesus' life, Jesus went around skipping temple ritual and calling people forgiven without it. And you can't do that without paying for it with your own life. That's why he was killed. Next slide. This is John's version of it. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and as it, as it is written. Don't be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. There's John. He quotes half the prophecy of Zechariah, and he leaves off the whole God conquering the war horse part. Okay? Why? He's partial to living, right? Watch this. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. Now, the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world's gone after him. In other words, we've tried our best to rule our place like a war horse, and they're still going after the guy on a donkey. Now, you might be thinking, Shane, you have just spoke for 40 minutes. So what? Great history lesson, mildly entertaining. I'm still left with a hanging question. What difference does that make? I live in 2015 in Hastings, New Zealand. Well, I think it has huge implications. If your goal with Jesus is to be forgiven and go to heaven when you die, I don't think it has any implications at all. 
I bless you to know that you are forgiven and you will go to heaven when you die. When you die, And if that is your goal, yippee. But shouldn't your goal be more than that? Like if Jesus asked you, why are you following me? I know you are. I just want to know why. Why are you following me? If Jesus asked you, why are you following me? And your only answer is, well, I'd hate to go to hell when I died. That's very degrading to Jesus. That'd be like your wife asking you, why'd you marry me? And your only answer is, well, the other chick was ugly. I wouldn't recommend that. If Jesus asked you, why are you following me? Your answer should be, I'm following you because I want to respond to your love for me by partnering with you to do whatever it is you want to do, namely establish your kingdom on the earth. Now, if your goal is to simply be forgiven and go to heaven when you die, none of this matters. But that shouldn't be our goal. For goodness sake, you're in church on a Thursday night. Right? That shouldn't be our goal. Our goal should be to establish the kingdom here. And if we're going to establish the kingdom, we need to act like our king. Hastings needs to see a kingdom that was established by a guy on a donkey, not on a war horse which has huge implications for us. Let's say it this way. Next slide. There are two ways to enter the city. Let's say it even better than that. There are two ways to get where you want to go in life. As a ruling empire or a humble servant. There's two ways to be a dad, two ways to be a mom, two ways to be a husband, two ways to be a wife, two ways to be an employee, two ways to be an employer, two ways to deal with the hectic traffic of busy Hastings. There's two ways to do that. There's two ways to do that. There's, there's two ways to deal with the slowest cashier at the, at the grocery store of New World. There's two ways to do that. Yes, you live in a world where you can drive a motor car on a paved road to a store that prepares food for you, and yet we find a way to complain. Hello, you live in New Zealand. If you can't make it here, where on God's earth are you going to go? Right? Right? There's two, ways, there's two ways to do it. There's two ways to handle conflict. There's two ways to deal with tragedy. There's two ways to deal with these things. There's two ways to live your life. You can get everything you want out of life by ruling my way or the highway. Or you can serve. Two ways to do it. Two ways to do it. Let's say it this way. There's two ways to enter the city as an oppressor or as a liberator. You can come up over the top of people and make them. Or you can come up beside people and set them free to be everything they can be. There's two ways to be a husband. Rule! I am the head of this house! Of course, in my experience, if you have to tell people you're in charge, you're not in charge. I'm the head of this house! Okay. (laughs) You're the head, she's the neck. She's turning you any way she wants. <laughs> when you try to run your house as a ruler, you will tend to win a lot of battles, but you will lose the entire war. They'll, they'll get very bitter. They'll, they'll resent you. Are you kidding me? There's two ways to get where you want to go in life. You can come from the gates of hell or from the house of God. You can bring hell to your whole world. Or you can bring the presence of God to it. There's two ways to do it. There's two ways to do it. Maybe the best way we can remember this first session tonight is this. There's two ways to get where you want in life. On a war horse or on a donkey.
you just want to go to heaven, you die, it doesn't matter. But, but if you want to establish the kingdom here, kingdoms get established when the followers of a king act like the king. And the king that we serve established his kingdom from a donkey, not the back of a war horse. Let's get real specific. Next slide. There's two ways to handle conflict. Wars! You will agree with me, or I am in, and you are out. And if you don't come to my way, I will spread evil about you everywhere. Wars! There's always donkey. There's two ways to do it. There's two ways to deal with tragedy. Wars! Or donkey. There's two ways to handle business. There's two ways to be an employee. Two ways to be an employer. I own this thing. My way or the highway. Of course, in my experiences, bosses like that get stolen from but bosses who come up underneath their employees and they give them a vested interest in the business, those employees will, will, will go to the extra mile for that boss. Let me even say it this way. Next slide. There's two ways to lead your ministry. Warhorse! I'm the man of God here. You will follow or get out. There's always donkey. People who figure out what God is saying about the values of the place and what this place will look like, and then they come up underneath a heap of people under one vision to do something great. There's two ways to raise your family. You could be a war horse. There's two ways to be a wife. Two ways to be a husband. Let's get real specific. Ma'am, there's two ways to treat your husband when he leaves his underwear on the floor for the 18,000th time. There's Warhorse. Pick up your underwear, you stupid idiot. <laughs> of course, if I could make an observation, please. Um, uh, you've just insulted the intelligence of a man that you would firmly expect to die for you if an intruder came in your house tonight over a pair of underpants. There's always donkey. Oh. The wonderful, intelligent man of God, husband of mine. The father of my children. The one who would gladly give his life for all of us if an intruder came in tonight. He has left his nasty, stinking underwear on the ground again. But because he would gladly die for all of us if an intruder came in tonight... I'll pick his underwear up for him and count it an even trade. There's always donkey. Now you men, pick up your nasty stinking drawers, huh? And light a match every now and then. You're disgusting. You men, there's two ways to handle it when your wife falls asleep too early. Mm-hmm. There's war horse! Get up! I have needs! Which always gets met with an incredible response. There's always donkey. Oh... The sweet, kind mother of my children is tired. I'll let her rest. 
It's always donkey. There's two ways to handle it when you're in the grocery store and you're stressed and all you need is six items for dinner tonight. And you pick up your six items and someone rushes in front of you into the express lane and they have 21 items. And the sign clearly says 15 items or less. There's two ways to handle it. Worse! Get out of my way! Can you read? There's always donkey. Oh. That person's in a hurry. I'll consider them better. There's two ways to handle it when you end up in the line of the slowest cashier in the store. There's worse! There's always donkey. There's two ways to handle it when someone cuts you off in traffic out here. It's not on my watch, mister. You pull around and you point your finger at the sky and call them number one. There's always donkey. Oh, where they're going is equally as important as where I'm going. Listen, it's one thing to be saved and forgiven and on your way to heaven. It's a whole other thing to establish the kingdom. And the, the simplest, most elementary way to establish the kingdom is establish your life on the same basis that our king did on the back of a donkey instead of a war horse. And listen, no one chooses the humble road in the heat of the moment. You have to choose the humble road before it ever happens. I bless you tonight to be people who don't just celebrate forgiveness of sins, but you embrace your role in establishing the kingdom. I bless you to be people who choose the higher road by choosing the lower road. I bless you to be people who choose to establish a kingdom like our king did on the back of a donkey. May you each have the faith to choose the humble road with, in the heat of the moment. May each of you have the bravery to choose every day to be a donkey instead of a war horse. May each of you have the bravery to every morning choose to face every situation that day in the humble path. May you choose to be a donkey. But please, 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 never, ever, ever be a jackass. God bless. Let's take a 20-minute break and we'll come back.